Hello all and welcome to Everything But The Kitchen Sink Podcast, Episode 14. I am your host Clay Anderson and today we will be discussing the Salem Witchcraft Crisis of 1692. It will discuss the crisis and provide an explanation for its causes and why it ended. Alright, now that that's over, let's start the show. By the late 17th century, the Massachusetts colony was fundamentally changed. The strains accompanying Massachusetts' transition from Puritan utopia to a royal colony reached an unhappy climax in the witchcraft hysteria of Salem Village in 1692. Belief in witchcraft pervaded European and New England society in the 17th century, Prior to the dramatic episode in Salem, almost 300 New Englanders, mostly middle-aged spinsters or widows, had been accused as witches and more than 30 had been hung. Still, the outbreak in Salem exceeded all precedents in its scope and intensity. The episode began when a few teenage girls became entranced listeners to stories told by a slave named Tichiba. Tichiba was actually an Indian and not a black slave, as often portrayed in stories of Salem since. The girls began acting strangely, shouting, barking, groveling, and twitching for no apparent reason. Initially, the people of Salem treated the outbursts as cases of demonic possession, but after weeks of prayer sessions brought no improvement, all the leaders accepted the diagnosis of witchcraft. The town doctor concluded that they had been bewitched and the girls pointed two Tichiba and two older white women as the culprits. Town dwellers were seized with a panic as word spread that the devil was in their midst. At a hearing before the magistrates, the afflicted girls rolled on the floor in convulsive fits as the three women were questioned by the magistrates. In the midst of this hysterical carnival, Tichuba shocked her listeners by not only confessing to the charge, but also divulging that many others in the community were performing the devil's work. With adult encouragement, the girls accused many village residents of witchcraft. The accusers came from families that strongly supported Minister Paris, who was the father of the first girls afflicted. Many of the first accused were old women who had opposed the acceptance of Minister Paris into the community. The crazed girls began pointing accusing fingers at dozens of residents, including several of the most respected members of the community. Within a few months, the Salem jail was overflowed with townspeople accused of practicing witchcraft. The number of accused escalated sharply and the crisis spread far beyond Salem after a 14-year-old girl named Abigail Hobbs confessed on April 19, 1692, that she had made a compact with the devil in Maine at age 10, just before the Indian War broke out with the Wampanoags. New England seemed to be on the edge of calamity. External force from the enemy, ruled by Satan and supported by missionaries and gunpowder from Catholic New France, which joined with an internal enemy of numerous witches who were destroying Massachusetts from within. Before the hysteria ran its course ten months later, 19 people had been hanged, with one man, Giles Corey, who refused to plead either guilty or not guilty, who was pressed to death by heavy stones. 
But as the net of accusations spread wider, extending far beyond the confines of Salem, colonial leaders feel that the witch hunts were out of control. When the afflicted girls charged Samuel Willard, the distinguished pastor of Boston's first church and president of Harvard College, the stunned magistrates had seen enough. Shortly thereafter, the governor intervened when his own wife was accused of serving the devil. He disbanded the special court and ordered the remaining suspects released. Nearly everyone responsible for the Salem executions later recanted and nothing quite like it happened in the colonies thereafter. What explains the witchcraft hysteria at Salem? Some have argued that it represents nothing more than a contagious exercise in adolescent imagination intended to enliven the dreary routine of everyday life. Yet, it was actually most of the adults who pressed the formal charges against the accused and provided most of the testimony. Others speculate that long-festering local feuds and property disputes may have triggered the prosecutions. One of the leaders of the young girls, for instance, was a 12-year-old, Ann Putnam, whose older male kinfolk pressed many of the complaints. The Putnam clan were landowners whose power was declining, and their pursuit of witches might have served as a psychic weapon to restore their prestige. These are all interesting explanations, but I want to offer a re-examination of the causes of the Salem Witch Trials. Firstly, women played an exceedingly important role in the Salem witch crisis, both as the accused and the accusers. Young girls and women had literally no power in male-dominated hierarchical society of Massachusetts. A girl was ruled by her father until the day she got married, and then ruled by her husband. Women of all ages in New England had no voice or power with which to evoke their opinions except through gossip and even then they were not seen as significant. Thus, it should not be a stretch of the imagination to understand that when these young girls and women were given a base of power through accusations of witchcraft, that they took it. For the first time in their lives, they were being listened to and were the most important people in the community. Not only were the most important people in Salem paying attention to them, but the most renowned preachers in all of the Massachusetts Bay Colony were paying attention to them. Thus, the scope and extent of the accusations were due in part to the fact that these young women, sadly, were empowered by the witchcraft crisis. Women were not only important for the Salem witchcraft crisis as accusers, but the accused as well. Many of the accused women, it turns out, had in some way defied the traditional roles assigned to females. Some had engaged in business transactions outside of the home, others did not attend church, and some were basically curmudgeons. Most were middle-aged or older, beyond childbearing age, and without sons or brothers. They, thus, stood to inherit property and live as independent women. The notion of autonomous spinsters flew in the face of prevailing social conventions. Secondly, the role of Puritans' worldview played a role in fomenting the Salem witchcraft crisis. Their singular worldview was one they had inherited from the first settlers of Massachusetts Bay more than 60 years earlier. 
The worldview taught them that they were a chosen people charged with bringing God's message to a heathen land previously ruled by the devil. And in that adopted homeland, God spoke to them repeatedly through his providences, that is, through small and large events in their daily lives. Remarkable signs in the sky, such as comets or the aurora borealis, natural catastrophes, such as hurricanes or droughts, small epi- smallpox epidemics, the sudden death of children or spouses, unexpected good fortune. All of these carried messages from God to his people, if only they can interpret the meanings properly. New England's Puritans, even in the third generation, believed themselves to be surrounded by an invisible world of spirits as well as by a natural world of palpable objects. Both worlds communicated God's message because both operated under his direction. Satan, whom Puritans understood to be the power of the air, leader of the evil angels, played a major role in the invisible world. Thus, the idea that the devil concretely interacted in each individual's life made it no far leap to believe that Satan worked through witches to attack the girls. Seeing the devil attacking these girls made the men in the community feel powerless. Thus, the trials continued because the men became invested into believing that the reputed witches, that these individuals were guilty, in large part because they needed to believe that they themselves were not guilty of causing the girls' current woes. Lastly, the recent Indian wars played a pivotal role in furthering the Salem witchcraft crisis because of the connection between Indians and the devil, and the accused girls and the frontier. After King Philip's war wrecked havoc on the settlements in Massachusetts, most of the young girls, who were orphaned by the natives and worked as servants, had moved to Salem. In the aftermath of the war, the Massachusetts colonists saw their repeated military failures not as mistakes by the military and political leaders, but rather to God's providence. God had, they concluded, visited these afflictions upon them as chastisements for their many sins. The connections between the witchcraft trial and the language of war on the frontier was also staggering. For example, the repeated spectral sightings of the, quote, black man, whom the afflicted described as resembling an Indian, and in the threat that the witches would tear the girls to to pieces or knock them on the head, which were all examples of what these young girls witnessed on the frontier, uh, that these really came together to create their narrative. And so that this, you know, what they had seen in the wilderness came back through these Salem trials. These girls had met the devil in the shape of a black man, i.e. Indian, on the main frontier. Furthermore, many of these young girls encountered Satan in their spectral image in the woods, which was the Indians' domain. The men could not defeat Satan in the form of Indians in the forest and garrisons on the northeastern frontier, but they could nevertheless attempt to do so in the Salem courtroom. The Lord, in short, was simultaneously punishing New England in two different ways, through King Philip's war on the northeastern frontier and through the operations of witchcraft in Essex County. 
This is not to say that the war caused explicitly the witchcraft crisis, but rather that the conflict created the conditions that allowed the crisis to develop as rapidly and extensively as it did. In its early stages, the episode that originated in Salem Village resembled several other witchcraft crisis incidents in the 17th century New England. Although the afflictions of the girls were unusual, they were by no means unique, nor were the adults' initial reactions to those afflicted unprecedented. But the girls' fits occurred in a supercharged atmosphere marked by ongoing conflict within Salem Village, even more important by the broader conflict along New England's borders. Now, if I were to pick which one I believed of the, the three, whether it be the women having power for the first time and using it, or it was the Puritans' worldview, or if it was the native wars, I would go with the native wars. Um, just too many things are familiar with what these young girls experienced on the frontier and what they, what they claimed having happened while they were in Salem Village. Most of the young girls who had been on the frontier were with their families and actually witnessed their, their mothers and fathers being torn to pieces, knocked on the head, being visited by a black man, which I just want to sidebar for a second. Um, in colonial New England, black man meant Indian. Uh, it also meant, I mean, basically there were two races. It was white and black. Um, there's a history book. I cannot remember the name of it. It's called Red, White, and Black, I think, by Schoenecker, um, that explains how you know the, the idea of Indians being red instead of black came into being. But so basically, when you hear, when you read the Salem sources, and it says, you know, the black man visited, that was Indians. So just throwing that out there before I go on and continue explaining. Um, so the words in which they used is what was happening to them is being hit, struck, scratched, beaten, smashed visited by a black man. These are all things that these young girls experienced when they were, you know, 9, 10, 11 years old on the frontier in Maine during the Indian Wars. Because they were orphaned, they were brought to Salem in mass. I mean, Salem had an enormous orphan population, and all these young girls worked as servants. And so they, not only were they orphans, but they were servants, so it's almost like the lowest of the low. And so they are explaining, I, I personally believe they were explaining, you know, that, that, that the Indian Wars caused such traumatic experience to happen in their lives that it sort of let loose through this witchcraft crisis and through these stories. Um, I also believe some of it was, I mean, I, I believe it's all three, but if I were to pick one of the reasons why the Salem witchcraft trials exploded the way it did, not just that it happened because they happened all the time in New England. Not all the time, but you know what I mean. They happened a lot. The reason why Salem exploded the way it did because it was just after the recent Indian Wars where the New Englanders had faced a really tough time. They, were, they got their butts kicked. They had fought the Pequots a generation earlier and had defeated them easily, but with King Phillips's war against the Wampanoags, they had a really tough time. And so... You know, the, the men are dealing with this in really a traumatic way, and so they're trying to figure out how they can, you know, make up for their loss, wake up for their defeats. And they believe that, you know, they're, they're going to fight Satan here in Salem with these witches who are fighting these young girls who had experienced warfare. 
And so if I were to pick, I would say that it was the war and the defeat in the war and how it was sort of brought home to New England from Maine and from the frontier into the middle of Salem as to what made the Salem witchcraft trials explode the way it did. All right, that's it for this episode. If you liked it, please uh, rate and review on iTunes. Five-star review, please. If you don't like it, just contact me directly through at AndersonClay86 on my Twitter account. Just say, hey, this needs fixing. I was going to write a review, see if you can fix it before I do. Uh, Five-star reviews really help. Um, That's about it. Next week, we're going to have a really awesome episode about the Dunn and Howland murders. Uh, in 1869, basically a missing persons murder mystery, a whodunit, whether it be Indians or guess what, Mormons, dun dun dun, yes they ride on bicycles, but in the 1800s perhaps they had something to do with Howland and Dunn going missing. Alright, that's it for this week, uh, I look forward to talking to you guys next week, have a good one, bye.